This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Ebony Underwood. Ebony is a Soros Justice Fellow and the daughter of William Underwood, who has served decades of a mandatory life sentence without parole for a nonviolent drug offense. As the founder and CEO of We Got Us Now, Ebony is an advocate for children impacted by parental incarceration and keeping families connected and doing incredible and important You've probably heard this many times before. The U.S. locks people up at a higher rate than any other country in the world. Leaving a bag behind bars is a really big deal. Well, I was one of those kids. I was ashamed to tell people that my father is in prison. It's been a little over 13 years since I've seen my firstborn child. For those behind bars during the coronavirus emergency, social distancing is all but impossible. The United States is the, the great mass incarcerator. We are 5% of the world's population, and yet and still, we incarcerate the most people on the planet. The most people on the planet. And 2.3 million of those people that are incarcerated, 50% of them are parents. Hi, my name is Ebony Underwood. I'm fighting for the rights of children and young adults impacted by parental incarceration. Sorry, not sorry. Ebony, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I want to start by talking about your story. Your father has been in prison for more than three decades. He's calling me right now. That's so funny. Listen, I'm going to play so you can hear. Happy prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from... William Underwood. An inmate at a federal prison. Can you hear that? This yeah. call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. I'm going to give it to my sister. I'll be right back. Okay. Yeah. Hold on, I'm doing an interview, but I'm going to give the phone to Nicole so you can talk to her. Sorry. No, don't be sorry at all. I totally get it. You don't want to miss that phone call. Oh, my God. You know why? Because the federal prison system is on lockdown. This is the first time a national lockdown in like 25 years that wow. they've been on lockdown. So the way that he called, like we speak very frequently prior to COVID, but since COVID, it's whenever he calls. So I can't miss his call. No, of course not. Especially when it's public health going on. Does he feel like he is being exposed in a way that makes him very vulnerable? You know, Alyssa, he's 66 years old. So he is part of what the CDC considers the most vulnerable population to COVID. We just look at it's just looking grim. It's only a matter of time before we all get it. There is an added touch of desperation to calls coming out of jails and prisons. We just in here, look. Around the country these days. Guys, it's coughing, and there's just no way to escape it, bro. So, you know, if this is the last one you see me in, bro, know that I love you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, not to sound like that, but it's real. Confinement and social distancing are mostly incompatible. Inside of a cell, you have to basically figure out how are you going to adjust because a few feet down from you is uh, another person. It's scary for me every single day. I talked to him over the weekend, so that's why I was okay with letting my sister talk to him because she didn't get to talk to him. But I talked to him over the weekend, and he shared with me that he actually was tested, and he's negative. Thank God. How do we keep him negative? I mean, do they have any protocol whatsoever in place? Because from what we're hearing, it's close quarters, there's no masks, there's no sanitation. Is that true? So this is what I know about federal institutions. Right. They're old facilities. 
That's number one. No air. He has been social distancing. So the way that they've been doing it is separating people and allowing each group of people. I think it's like 10 people at a time because they're in like dorms and bunks. And so within his dorm, they allow the men to go out. But because of his age, he's like, it just seems like there's too many people out and I'm a little scared. But which is kind of bad because every other day he gets to shower, go to commissary and like either do an email or a call all within one hour. The 23 remaining hours, he's sheltered in place in a cell. He's basically on lockdown. So it's really heartbreaking. Besides calling his daughters, is there anything that is giving him hope in this time? The work that I've been doing. Tell me how old you were when your father was incarcerated. I don't actually say my age, but I'll say this. I like that trick. Because of the issue that I'm talking about mainly, but I was an adolescent, young adolescent, when my father was incarcerated and it completely devastated me, completely. I'm sure. And that's such a hard age for a young woman anyway. Yeah. I was a young adult. I was like 13, 14 years old when it occurred. What effect did it have on you? I mean, besides just being hard, like how did that manifest itself on your being, on your heart? Right. So, you know, the stages of grief, I would say most immediately. Well, let me just kind of give you an overview of what happened. So my father was in the music industry. He was a music manager, promoter, and a publisher. And at the time of his arrest, he was like on the pinnacle of his career, like really doing well. So he traveled very often because he promoted records. He would often go to different states, go to radio stations to promote different artists because he promoted everyone. He worked for all the different labels. And so he promoted many different artists from like Michael Jackson to like Kenny Loggins. To wow. Wonder. Yeah. To Ray Charles, like all sorts of people. And so when he was arrested, I guess my gut reaction was to just assume that he was on the road right? He was traveling because there are no real instructions for how this occurs, right? I believe it was a coping mechanism. Yeah, probably that is true. It is amazing how resilient we can become, right? Absolutely. And so for the first nine months, we acted that way. So it's me and my sister. Me and my sister, we have the same mom. And then I have two other brothers. I'm an older brother and a younger brother. And my younger brother was actually present when my father was arrested. He was five years old and he was actually there in the presence of the whole arrest. And my father's in federal prison. So it was big, like DEA, you know, all of these. It was drug arrests, drug charges. Yeah, it was not good. So my sister and I weren't there. And so we just kind of likened it to him being on the road. So for the first nine months, we did not see him, right? And then he like calls and he had been calling all along. And now it's this new format, calling, you receive a call and you hear this phone is from a federal institution, blah, blah, blah. And so, okay, that's new, but whatever. Again, kind of putting it on my mind and just assuming that he is where he is. But he says to us at that nine month part, are you guys going to ever come visit me? Warren Harris hadn't seen his daughter in six years. She was just a little girl when he last held her. When she came in the door, I didn't even know who she was. It kind of it kind of threw me off. It was just overwhelming. I haven't seen him in a long time. I had a feeling I was going to cry. I was just so happy. <laughs> my sister and I were like, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, we, we didn't really know, right? Like, my mom doesn't know. Nobody in the family really knows what that looks like. My parents aren't together, mind you. So my aunt, she comes and picks us up. Like I told you, my dad was in the entertainment business. So every time we would hang out with my dad, we would get dressed up because you never know who you may see. You may see a celebrity or whatever, right? So that's exactly what we did. And so we got dressed, really nice clothes. I remember even picking out my outfit. I can remember it clearly. And the first instinct that I knew something was different was when I got into his car because she had his car and I got into his car and my father is like immaculate. Everything is pristine. He's very Mm. meticulous and clean. The Mm. car was a mess. Wow. And that little thing triggered me like, okay, I know something is different. I don't know. Where is my dad? Like, then it all started to come forward. So you didn't know he was incarcerated at this time? No, no. I knew. But again, remember, I'm liking it to him being on the road. Again, just trying to cope with understanding what this looks like and not even wanting to really deal. So not thinking about it. Right. I don't know what this is. I don't even know what this is. Yeah. As a teenager, you're just like, 
okay, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, okay, I got to go back to Amazing. normal because I don't even I don't even know how to deal with this. Right, you don't even know how to comprehend. No, okay. not at all. Right, you just don't know what that means. Now you're confronted with it, and now I'm actually about to go see him. Now, let me just tell you this. My father is the patriarch of the family. So he always took care of everything. So now someone else is coming to take us to see him. This is just like a whole weird thing. Wow. In his car, which is a mess. Which is the first inkling like, okay, where is he? This is very different. Right. Then we get to the facility. And this is 89. So you drove up to the building. Right. We drove to the facility. And then we go through the metal detectors. And this is 89. So we're not familiar with this at all. You know, at least with the airport, we know what this is now today. But at that time, no, there was no such thing as metal detectors. And then finally, after waiting for hours, we finally get to go inside to see him. It had to be at least two hours we waited. And so we finally get inside. And my father, as I shared, he was a very distinguished man, always in suits, always well-dressed. When he actually came out to the visiting space, he was shackled at his hands and at his feet, and he had an orange jumpsuit on. And my younger sister, I guess it just kind of terrified her. She completely broke down. Why is it a big deal? Like, this is the one time you can, like, sit in his lap, let him hug you. He can't get up at all. Then me seeing her, I was just like, Oh, no. So then I broke down in tears. Right. And then we're like just crying and he's trying to console us. But meanwhile, you know, his hands are like yeah, yeah. trying to console us and we're just not understanding. Like, what happened? What is going on? And by the time we really kind of get ourselves together, can I tell you that the visit is over? They're like, Ugh. OK, you got to go now. I'm like, what? That's it? I remember it so vividly. And it was now over 30 years ago. I remember it so vividly because... Well, because it made an impact. You know, I find so often when we see visuals like that, it's not even that we remember the exact words that were said or anything. We remember those visuals. And then as we start to age just psychologically, we then plug in the things that we think we were supposed to feel at that time. And sometimes those things are not the same as what they are as you grow older. And I think that's also a way to protect yourself because you could be any emotion, pick an emotion, angry. 15 years later, you could look back at that instance and it's not anger anymore. You realize that wasn't anger. That was just total fear. Yeah. That was fear. And now that fear has grown into a different fear. And here's my fear. Or pain, yeah. Yeah, that's a big thing with children of incarcerated parents, I have to say. Even for myself, I was angry for many years. That was the first real, like, blow, that experience of going to see him. And thankfully, I prayfully, my father has been an incredible dad. He has Mm. been an incredible dad, like, just a really solid human being. And as an adult, like you just explained very eloquently, that is exactly what has had to happen for me, being able to look back And look at my anger as pain, like pain and disappointment and anger and like love and everything bunched together. It was all of those things because I was just so hurt. I was like, why did this happen to me? The shame, all of it. It's just like I'm angry because now I'm ashamed. I can't even share. I didn't share for years. I didn't share for years about this experience because I just didn't know how to explain it. I didn't know what to say. What would I say to friends? What would I say to people? Why? And I love him dearly. So Right, of course. And you're proud of him. Yeah. Growing up, I was prior to this whole arrest. I didn't understand so much of it. And what finally made me address it, fast forward to me and becoming this public advocate for children of incarcerated parents, what finally made me say something was, number one, the number of years that he had been incarcerated was just so long. At that point, it was like 25 years he had been incarcerated. And Obama and his administration decided that they were going to reform the criminal justice system. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, the president is going to do something. My brother's Mm. like, yeah, my older brother's like, Ebony, I think something's going to happen now. Mm. And I had been hearing that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It has been an emotional roller coaster. There have been laws that have come to pass. And my father gets so excited, like, yeah, this is about to help me. And this will give me the opportunity to petition the court and come out and come to find out these laws would pass and they would not be applicable to him because they were not made retroactive. What that means is that when a law lacks retroactivity, that means that it only applies to cases moving forward. So any cases that defined under this law would make this person be released. It only could happen for cases moving forward once the law is in place. So any cases that are prior to this law coming out, they're not applicable. Even if it absolutely makes sense for the law to be applied to this case that happened in 1988, no, it would not be applicable because this is what the law says. So that's why so much of it, like I would have that experience with my dad and he explained, oh yeah, it'll be a new law and it's coming out and it's in my favor. And then again, it would lack retroactivity. And so I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Like for us, normal things that make sense, the law does not work like that. They try to make it as illogical and irrational as humanly possible. I don't know why they try to complicate it, but this is something that is so important because what you're saying is, is that through all of this, he still had hope. Oh, my God, he still does. He's more hopeful sometimes than me. Well, I think that that's why you've been able to take whatever anger you had or whatever pain or whatever hurt and turn it into something that is hopeful, like we got us now, right? I think if you were just driven by, let's say, anger, I don't know that you could still be doing what you're doing. Also, that you would still have the relationship you have with him. That hope is like so important to evolution. I would love for you to give my listeners a real rundown of A, what life is like for kids of parents who are incarcerated, but also give us some numbers. How many of these kids are out there? And what is life like for them? This is exactly my story. This is exactly why I got into this and decided to speak publicly. Number one, because of my dad, because he's been an incredible father. But when I found out that the Obama White House had an initiative for children of incarcerated parents, I was taken aback like, oh my God, what do you mean? I'm a grown woman at this point. I had no idea that there was a title for what I had been living for so mm. much of my life. I was mm. like, wait, there's a name for what I've been living? Well, then what is it and who is it and what are they doing? So there's a thing called children of incarcerated parents and people care? Wow, really? I'm a researcher anyway, just by nature. And so I made it my business to learn every and anything about this topic. And the first thing I did was find out who are the organizations that are doing this work. Tons of organizations across the country that are doing this work. There's one in particular, the Osborne Association. It's a New York State-based organization. I'm from New York, but my father is in federal prison. So when I went to find out more and learn about Osborne, I talked to the executive director and I talked to them and I found out that their work was primarily focused on state-based issues. But then I was like, wait a minute, but my father's in federal prison. So what about the children that have families that are right. in federal prison? And they said, well, we know that that work is important, but our work is centered on New York State, which is understandable to get funding. Right. So then it made me understand that, oh no, there's a whole segment of the population that we're leaving out. We can't do that. And so that was what really ultimately mm. propelled me to say, I need to start We Got Us Now because I wanted to not leave out any segment of the population. Additionally, Osborne and many other organizations, they focus on younger children. And that's a big reason why I don't even say my age. <laughs> but they focus on younger children, children under the age of 18. And for me and my siblings, that was also a huge segment of people that were being left out. We had been dealing with this since we were under the age of 18. There's no magic button that at 18, all of this goes away. 
There is no magic button all of a sudden that you turn 18 and, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm great. Yeah, my father's incarcerated and I'm just dealing. Absolutely not. And so it just made me say, okay, we cannot leave out any segment of the population. We are not only solely focused on young adults, but we're also focused on children and young adults. We're the first of its kind, nonprofit, nonpartisan national organization built by, led by, and about children and young adults who have been impacted by parental incarceration. That's amazing, Ebony. That is amazing. What an amazing thing that you are doing. So what are we looking at? What are the numbers? Because I feel like the more we demystify the stigma that's attached to it, the better, right? We need to get all of these things out of the shadows. We need to talk about them. We need to remind people of the humanity Absolutely. So I'll tell you this. We know that we incarcerate 2.3 million people in the United States. We're the great mass incarcerator. The notion that society is best served by taking people who break the law and locking them up for a long time, that notion has always had a powerful constituency in this country. That's why on a per capita basis, the United States has more people behind bars, 2.3 million, than any other country in the world. And a lot of the sentences are insanely long. 50% of those people are parents. 2.7 million children under the age of 18 have a parent that's incarcerated. That's greater than the states of Maine and New Hampshire combined, that population. But the epidemic, the reason why I really started this work was that over 10 million children have at some point in their life been having a parent that was incarcerated at some point. So when I learned that number, I was like, oh my God, where are these children? Who are they? How do we lift the shame to be able to help these kids, right? Exactly. How dangerous is shame? There's a saying that if you don't deal with things in one area of your life, it'll show up in every area of your life. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. For me, I did not share so much of this because I really didn't understand it. I didn't know it. I was ashamed. My father has life without parole. He has an extremely harsh sentence of life without parole. And that just made me say, I don't know what this is and I don't want to deal with it. And so I'm just going to push it to the back burner. And I have to tell you, most children of incarcerated parents, I've talked to hundreds of them from all across the country. And most of us feel this way. We don't want to be associated with it because it's a very negative thing. And more often than not, we just are very resilient people and Mm -hmm. overachievers. And there's this narrative about who we are that we are more likely to end up incarcerated. I wanted to ask you, does it impact success later in life? Children serve time too, you know? So when their parents are incarcerated, the parents aren't the only one who are feeling that effect. It is a ripple effect. Their families, their kids are feeling that. And not only in the time that they're incarcerated, but for generations. Dr. Nia Hurd-Gerritz just published a study describing what these cars may look like. She and her colleagues analyzed national survey data from over 13,000 young adults. 10% had a parent incarcerated during their childhood. And compared to their peers, they grew up more likely to forego necessary medical care, use drugs, and engage in risky sexual behaviors. So I'll say absolutely yes, but it's not in a negative way. It's actually in a positive way. Because of this experience, most children don't want to be like their parents. They love their parents, but they don't want to make those same mistakes. And again, that goes back to the resilience and the overachievers. If you really think about this, this is the person that brought you life, right? This is the person that brought you onto this planet. That's the closest person to you. So for a child, how are they coping with it? The separation most immediately is the thing that I think is most impactful. When you are separated like this, this is very similar. I wrote an article for Mike back in May, and it was called, I've been social distancing for 31 years. Mm. The reason why I say that is because Us social distancing in the world, how long has it been for us? It's like a little over four months that we've been social distancing. And everyone is stir crazy, right? Of being inside and being away from their loved ones. You see your loved ones, you can't even hug them or kiss. This is exactly Mm. what it feels like to be a child of an incarcerated parent. The world is experiencing what we deal with. This is only five months of this. Imagine years. Imagine decades. 
So the best way that I can explain what this feels like is, is very similar to our experience with COVID and this pandemic and how we've had to be separated from one another. This is exactly what it feels like. When you put it like that, it breaks it down for me to be able to relate. And maybe that's your gift, right? Is to, through your organization, give people the opportunity to be empathetic and compassionate right? And I think if you could come from a place of love and do this work, I think you're going to make such a huge, huge difference. And look, we're learning about the racial injustices in our criminal justice system. Those of us who have been activists for a while have known for a while, but I think the rest of the world is really just starting to wake up to what is happening. So I want you to talk about the racial component of criminal justice and how it affects these kids and also how it affects unfair sentencing. Oh my gosh, let's talk about it from the aspect of sentencing, right? Studies have repeatedly shown that the legal system targets Black and Latinx people with harsher prison sentences than white people arrested for similar offenses. African Americans are nearly five times more likely than white Americans to be incarcerated. And young men of color are much more likely to be singled out for prison. This systemic inequality and overt racism are hardest on men of color without a high school degree. About one in three Black men who hasn't graduated high school is currently incarcerated. And there's a 70% chance that Black men without a high school diploma will spend time behind bars before age 35. My father received an extremely harsh sentence. He was part of the first round of convictions that were made under the war on drugs. And so because he did not cooperate, they basically threw him under the jail to me. That's what I liken it right. to. And again, he was part of those first round of convictions. So three decades later, 30 years later, we're now in this state of mass incarceration, right? And trying to reform or reimagine what we've been doing as a country, as a society around this racial injustice for decades. So many, you know, the New York Times came out with an article back when Obama started this whole reforming around criminal justice. This is 2015, 2016. And they said 1.8 million Black men are missing in America. Where are they? Incarcerated. Oh they were incarcerated. Right. The racial injustices around this is just phenomenal and the way that it's just been subtly swept under the rug. And so for a large part of the work that we do around this issue is really, we want to heal our young people. This is a historically invisible population, children of incarcerated parents, they are. And so how I wanted to begin this work was through the use of digital narratives. Mm -hmm. I started in this work as a fellow under the Soros Justice Fellowship. And as a Soros Justice Fellow, I was able to travel across the country and just really find out who was doing the work, where was the work being done, who are the children, where are the children, speaking publicly. I partnered with Google and I produced a digital campaign called Love Letters. We did it for three years. Mm -hmm. John Legend introduced the video. One year, we had Taylor Schilling from Orange is the New Black introduce the video, utilizing people that are active and care about these issues, but are public figures, but to help us to amplify these really, really pressing issues, number one, because I wanted to find the population. Children of incarcerated parents and young adults are historically invisible. Most yeah. of them do not share. I'm a content creator. I have not been advocating for decades around this. I've been doing it personally in my personal life, but my background is marketing and promotion in the entertainment business. And so I got into this work because I started to see like if my father's going to ever get out and he's older now, I feel like he has rehabilitated himself. He has expressed it in every way possible from birthday cards to holiday cards. Like annually, he is relentless with just being a consistent, constant father. I felt like at the very least, his grandchildren should have the opportunity to experience this. So what can I do to potentially support him being able to come home? But not just my dad, so many other children of incarcerated right. parents. By me sharing my story, it allowed for so many people all across the country to come up to me often when I would be publicly speaking and say, 
Ebony, thank you so much for sharing. This is my story too. It wasn't just black and brown kids. It was young white women, young white males, young Asian women. I've met everybody from every nationality around this issue. The narratives that have been perpetuated and the people that have been incarcerated are people that look like me. And so I'm just like, this is so unfair. We all need to come together and not wait for somebody to do this work for us, but for us to be those voices. And so that's what we call We Got Us Now, because I wanted to provide these safe and inclusive spaces for these young adults and these children to advocate through campaigns that will ensure that our voices are at the forefront of strategic initiatives, practices, and policies that will help to keep our families connected to secondly, create fair sentencing, and then ultimately end mass incarceration. Because why are we at this place? We do not need another generation of mass incarceration. If we do not address these issues, this is what will become of it. And there's so many little subtle things that happen. It's so multi-layered when you have a parent that's incarcerated. My friends are asking me, where's your dad, where's your dad? And I'm like, he's at work. I can't really tell them. They're always bragging I'm having a daddy and daughter day with my dad or I'm going somewhere fancy with my dad. And they're always like saying stuff that I don't have. I don't like it when all my other friends have a dad there and, and um. The commoditization and the monetization of our parents just to remain in contact. You know, every single time my dad calls, yep. it costs money. Yep. And where is he getting that money from? Us. I have a friend who wanted to remain in contact with her mom. Her mom has been incarcerated since she was two years old. Her maternal grandparents both passed away. She has no family except her mother. And so in order Mm. for her to remain connected to her mother, it was literally through money. She's like, my relationship with my mom has been completely commoditized. So when you think about the rippling effect, I liken mass incarceration to a tsunami that has ripped across the country devastating communities and ripping apart families and children of incarcerated parents are the innocent bystanders of that. The system does not work. I mean, I guess it works the way they intended it to work, but it doesn't really work as far as rehabilitation and healing. And it just seems like to me that we're convicting kids along with their parents. Feels like that often. Is there any meaningful support for the families of the person in jail? Besides what you're offering, is there anything on a state level, federal level, where they're offering counseling? There are organizations that do work that support children of incarcerated parents, by all means, yes. So We Got Us Now, our organization is working to do all these things. But our intention behind that is by galvanizing us as a community, the children and young adults who've been impacted. So we started this leadership program called the Actionist Leadership Program. And the Actionist Leadership Program, basically what it does is identifies young people all across the country. And then we come together. This was our intention initially. And it started in January 2020. It's a six-month program where we brought together 10 young people from all across the country. And what we did was we took them on a three-day retreat. And in that retreat, we interwove in personal wellness as well as professional development inside that. Before I could ever ask them to advocate on behalf of this issue, as you shared, we've literally been trudging along with our parents through this experience. And so it's heavy. It's heavy. I would think it'd be heavy for your dad as well. Dear son, there are a lot of things I meant to tell you before you grew up. I suppose by now you've learned some of them for yourself, but there are things you need to know and words you'll only learn from someone who knows you from the start. You mentioned before that you excelled because you didn't want to turn into your dad. But on the other side of that, I have to also think that there is an element where you want him to know that he didn't ruin your life. Do you know what I mean? Because then for him to carry that burden as well as the sentencing... I think would be so much. So you almost had to prove to him, hey, you know what? I'm okay and I'm going to be okay. And you know what else? I'm going to help other people who are in the same exact situation so that they're okay. And he must be so proud of you, Ebony. Oh, thank you for saying that. 
Yeah, for real. Yeah, yeah, he is. I'm I'm actually really proud of him too. He's been incarcerated for this amount of time, this 31 years, and not a single infraction. Not one time did he get in trouble. Every day he's been trying to better himself. Every day he tries to be a father. He tries to be a present grandfather. My son has never met him outside of prison walls. My nephew, my niece have never met him out of prison walls, but they have a very strong relationship with him because he's mated his business to intentionally right. be a part of our lives because of the mistake that he made when he was younger and he's had to pay for it for the rest of his life. And so that's so why I do this work as well, because it's not just sharing our stories, but also being able to say, you know what, if this is a system of corrections, at what point are we correcting if we're locking people away for life? What are we doing? What are we doing? The rest of the world for some of the most heinous crimes, it's enough to keep people incarcerated. But 20 years is the max amount of time that they give for the most heinous crimes. Why are we incarcerating this so harshly? What are we doing? It's just disgusting, institutionalized racism, and it ends now. I pray that it does. I pray that people hear us and really understand the multitudes of systemic racism that still exists to this day. I mean, how can you not understand Black Lives Matter? Like, why is that so confusing for people? We've seen people die on television. How many times? that upsets me the most are the people we didn't see die on TV because there is a real benefit to cell phones and the fact that they can video what's happening. It fits in your pocket. No one is safe from it. Technology with body cams and what was happening before we had access to this footage. Oh, no. So when I try to talk to people in my family that are from the colorblind generation, what I am trying to instill in them is if we didn't see this with our very own eyes, if this was not uncovered by technology, we would never know. But now we know. So you have a little bit of an excuse until everyone could afford a cell phone that had a video camera. I don't know when that happened. But after that, you have no excuse because now we are seeing it. Now it is in your fucking face and in in real time. And it's not just once a year or once a decade. It is now a daily occurrence. That's why it's so important to share our stories. Most people, when they think about a parent that's incarcerated, they don't think about the children at all. And so that's why we started We Got Us Now, because I don't fault the public. I just feel like they don't know. So I'm here to bring it to light. I'm here to share those stories. I'm here to amplify the voices of all the young people across the country that we're connected to, to share their stories. There are organizations across the country. You asked me that earlier. There are organizations. They're developing the slight distance in Detroit, Michigan, by a young woman who her mom was incarcerated. Her name is Tiffany Brown. In Louisiana, there's an organization of two young women, Bree Anderson and Dominique Johnson. They are two women who both have had fathers incarcerated. They started an organization called Daughters Beyond Incarceration. We just passed a bill collectively. We got us now, along with Daughters Beyond Incarceration, to now have a cabinet for children of incarcerated parents and their caregivers that will be housed in the governor's office. Wow, that is special. Does this have anything to do with you talk about the four demands that children whose parents are imprisoned make to change the system? Is that? Absolutely. Okay, so tell us what those demands are and how they would help. Absolutely. So in light of COVID, we knew immediately that there is no such thing as social distancing. And so because we had to restructure our whole actionist leadership program, we started off with a retreat and then it would lead up to us actually doing direct action projects with all our different actionists across the country. So each of them were set out to do these public actions. But now COVID hit. And so we were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? 
So we put together an emergency call on a Saturday afternoon, and we came up with an open letter where you can go read on wegotusnow.org. But we had an open letter with four very clear demands. The first clear demand was that we wanted immediate clemency for elders and sickly parents in prison, mainly because we know that they were the most vulnerable population inside to COVID. Everything is about cleanliness. So we were like, wait a minute, let's get them out of there. They don't need to be there, especially if they have been there for years. We know that people age out of criminality. That's another thing. Elders pose no safety risks. And then we also know that the yearly cost to keep elders in prison doubled from 30 to 60,000 due to medical care. So if this is all about health care, then let's get these people out. I really want people to understand what you just said. $60,000 a year for one bed in prison, correct? Yes. Daddy, I really wish when I come to see you that you could come home with me. I love you so much. I love you too. The taxpayers are paying $60,000 a year to keep elderly, vulnerable, reformed family people who have had unfair sentencing because of systemic racism during a pandemic. And we're still paying 60 grand a year. Like, I often resort to money because I feel like sometimes it's the only way that like white Republicans can understand how fucked up the system is. Right. It's true. Right? I mean, I think people overall, some people just need to see how it affects their income or yeah, they're tax paying dollars. Like really my taxes are going to somebody that's been incarcerated for over 30 years. Like, why am I doing this? They've shown that they've rehabilitated themselves. Why are we continuing to incarcerate them? It's supposed to be a system of corrections. If they've shown they've been corrected, what is the why when we know people age out of criminality? It's becoming a geriatric center inside. It's disgusting. So that's our first demand, immediate clemency for those that are sickly and for those that are elderly. The second demand is free communication. We wanted to make phone calls free because we feel as the children of incarcerated parents that we should not be paying to speak to our parents. They should make emails free. These telecommunication companies profit $1.2 billion annually from prison communication. It's a time of a pandemic. These telecommunication companies, they made all kind of support for people during the pandemic from Sprint to Verizon to all these telecommunication companies. They came out and was like, you know what? If you have family members that are overseas or in international places, we won't charge you data. They made concessions. So we're like, okay, hello, what about us? Because we're still paying full price for everything. So that's the second thing. That was our second demand was free communications. And I have to tell you, in the federal system, I was like, are they reading my demands? Because they currently did make phone calls free. So right now, the phone calls are free at the federal level. But at the state level, and this is why this is not a monolithic issue, because at the federal level, they made a change. But at the state and at the local level, people are still paying all sorts of ginormous prices just to remain connected to their family members, which is so ridiculous. So free communications was our second demand. Our third demand was something that the accidents were really adamant about. There is no notification system. Some people were thinking that they could still actually go visit their loved ones, not hearing from them. Because remember, there was a national lockdown. So many people didn't hear from their loved ones. So they were worried and were trying to visit. But how would they know that there is no visiting, right? So we are asking for implementation of a notification system that alerts families. Again, the federal system, I think they may have been reading mine, hopefully, or they heard us. No, I'm sure it's you. You're definitely having that kind of impact. They implemented a notification system where now every day at 3 p.m., they update their platform around COVID. So they're notifying, but I cannot say the same thing is happening at the state levels or at the local levels. Again, This is not a monolithic issue. It trickles down to so many levels. It's it's the federal level, then it's the state prison, then it's the county jail. So federal prison, state prison, county jail, they all operate differently. And so the way that we feel, though, as children of incarcerated parents, it's very much the same. We all feel the same. And so we all similarly have the same demands. So we need to make sure that we express these demands because these notification systems, people need to know how their loved ones are doing. Clemency, free communication, a notification system. And then what is the fourth? The fourth demand is safe and sanitary measures. 
federal institutions, correctional institutions, whether at the state, local, or federal level, are primarily older facilities. They're old. They're not very clean. We know that in New York State, there was a law that people could not use hand sanitizer, but apparently they were actually making hand sanitizer. Some of these incarcerated individuals were making hand sanitizer. We're asking for free soap and hand sanitizer and hygiene products because if you don't have it, then you have to go and get it from the commissary. And it costs just as much as it costs for us out here. And they do not make that kind of money inside. And so if we aren't working, right, the incarcerated individuals, family members because of COVID, how the heck are they supposed to have any sort of income to help them to um, sanitize or communicate with their families, all of that? Feminine hygiene products, women don't have those things, sanitary napkins. Like, what are they supposed to do in these instances? Though I had support and I had resources, which allowed me to pay for menstrual pads um, only a pack a week. Sometimes I needed more. So whatever they issued, which were very thin and flimsy, cheap, um, what I was told I needed to do was I had to quantify my cycle, which means I had to put the used pads in a brown paper bag, show them to a male officer so that he can issue me more pads. And just to go through that experience and, you know, the lack of dignity, the dehumanization, the um, trauma that it consistently um, caused to me, I quickly realized that it was most likely happening in even harsher ways for women who did not have additional resources or even the will or courage to speak up. So we are demanding that these things become free at all levels, not just at the federal level, not just at the state level, but at the county level as well. They should not be paying for medical care. There is medical co-pays inside. There should be no medical co-pay. It's already enough that you have this person in your custody. Again, most people don't know that these are the types of things that are happening. Yeah. And who pays for it? We're already at a disadvantage. The children and the family members. A large majority of people are in drugs because of some financial setback. They're trying to gain income, right? Just trying to capitalize or get money. And so when you take that person out of the home, the family immediately becomes disadvantaged, right? Financially, economically disadvantaged. But now you have a system that is constantly eating at your expenses. And making money for capitalism, basically. Profiting off of our pain is what we call it. Yes. So we're here to say, hashtag, protect our parents. Stop profiting off of our pain. We are already traumatized by this experience. COVID-19 has only exacerbated our pain and our separation. Because now I don't know when I'll be able to visit my dad, if ever. I don't know when they will reinstate visiting. I don't know when that will happen. And if I do, what is that going to look like? At this point, I'm trying to get him home. But for so many other families that are going through this, children have to think about going to school. I've talked to many educators. They were like, oh, my God, we don't even think about this. When I have a kid that acts up sometimes, maybe I should have taken into account that maybe they just came off of a visit on a Monday right. morning, right. you know, on this Sunday. This and how can weekend. we and how can we support right. how do we that? support them? How do we support these kids? What are we doing to take into account that these kids are really going through things? It's trauma. You're so incredible, Ebony. And thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. How can people help We Got Us Now and what you're doing in your mission? Thank you so much. Thank you for creating this platform for me to share my story. Anytime. My microphone is your microphone whenever you need Thank it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. People can go to wegotusnow.org. We have a petition there to protect our parents. We also have a video there that you can watch for the young people that are sharing their pain through words. And so You can go there and sign a petition. We have a change.org petition. It's on our website. You can also go there to read our open letter. You can join our movement where you can get updated with all our newsletters and information that we have been putting together. We have an upcoming campaign that is centered around education and political awareness because right now, more than ever, our prosecutors, our judges, 
all those people that are coming into office and people that are being elected this election cycle, we want to make sure that in the local right. elections, I know the big election yeah. is the federal election or the national election, but where we can probably have the most impact, where things can be done, are the local elections. So we've been keeping our followers and district our District attorneys, updated. people, district there attorneys. You go. And we've been keeping them updated through our newsletter. So if you come and you join our movement, go to wegotusnow.org, join our movement. You can donate to We Got Us Now. We have a donate page. We have hoodies. This is a hoodie that I have. Oh, it's so Um, cute. Yeah, we have t-shirts. We have a bunch of different stuff. I think I want to end this with almost how we started. I want to talk about hope and what gives you hope and what gives you the hope to keep going. So for me, hope is an acronym. Hope is hold on, pain ends. Mm. because that is exactly what happened to me. It was by me sharing. It has been so cathartic for me to share. And what gives me hope every day is knowing that I have been able to share my story and potentially impact another life that has potentially maybe have been invisible to this and did not want to speak about it because they were part of that historically invisible population of being a child of incarcerated parents. So that maybe they are inspired or maybe a listener who just wants to be an ally and had no clue that this population even existed. So what gives me the hope is being able to talk to people like you, Alyssa, and just to know that I need to hold on and that pain will end and that I have the hope for Father's Day. That's the campaign that we came up for my dad. My father's name is William Underwood. And my hope is for Father's Day because for us, me and my three siblings, whatever day our father comes home will be considered Father's Day. Mm. You are amazing, Ebony. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. I really appreciate you. Thank you. When a parent goes to prison, the child is left behind to mourn the life that could have been. They fumble through a bunch of what ifs and maybes. And when you tell someone that your parent is in prison, their face contorts to an undeniable state of pity for you. Trust me, I've seen it. Some of you are making it right now. I would imagine it's like sharing you have a parent that has passed away, but very different at the same time. When you share that your parent has died, people think about their own mortality and the mortality of their mom or dad. They send flowers and cards and bake bag casseroles, but ultimately, they show concern for those left behind. Making a prison announcement, that's a little different. You don't see that on Facebook. You generally don't see anything because the shame is too much to bear. Mm. Mass incarceration is violence. We stepped from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration, and the generational effects of this violence, of this hateful discrimination, are devastating, and it's self-perpetuating. We've created a for-profit system of locking up black and brown people. And then when they're free, a law enforcement system, which is designed to lock them back up. Whether you say the whole thing is broken or that it's working just as it was designed to do, I don't think you can argue with the fact that there is much injustice in our criminal justice system. Recently, a nonviolent protester in Pennsylvania, a street medic named Taylor, was arrested and told she had to post a million dollars in bail for her release. A million dollars! She didn't hurt anyone. She was trying to help people that were hurt. Taylor is not white. Now, I know that I am a millionaire. And if I was arrested in the same situation, nobody would set bail at a million dollars. I know my kids wouldn't have to spend their lives visiting their mother in prison. This is not justice. This is not peace. There is neither law nor order in this country because this discrimination is rotten to its core. We need to fundamentally remake our entire criminal justice system. From the writing of the laws to policing to prosecuting and to incarcerating. We need to do it now. We needed to do it 200 years ago, but we can't wait. We cannot wait another day. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. 
please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.